Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. So I'm going to be reading 2 Timothy 2, 14 to 3, 17. Dealing with false teachers. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of, of truth. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace among, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Thank you so much, everyone. I trust you had a restful night. I was speaking to one fellow who was enjoying his king-size bed last night. Um, so sorry for those that missed out on that. Uh, but it is great to be here. I've really enjoyed uh, the chats that I've had with some of you and the overall vibe of the place. And so really privileged to come and minister God's word to you. Uh, let me pick up on the reading um, and uh, read chapter 3 and, and then just launch straight into what we're considering this morning. You can see that your booklets have the, the points. Uh, and so uh, there's going to be no surprises, at least in terms of where we're going with it. Uh, covering a book over two or three sessions is not going to do every single verse justice in the manner that it would deserve ordinarily, but hopefully we're still going to get the thrust of what Paul is writing to Timothy here. So um, let's read chapter 3, um, verse 1, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, 
swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Apart from that, they're, they're really dead on. Mm-hmm. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jans and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was with those, um, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings, what happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learnt and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learnt it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We uh, sang this morning in uh, the devotion in Christ alone, which probably over the last 20 plus years has been the most popular and most famous of modern Christian hymnody, Um, but probably what will still continue to also stand the test of time is the most famous Christian hymn written, most likely, uh, Amazing Grace by John Newton. John Newton once wrote this to a friend. Uh, Hopefully the quote is on the screen. I am a riddle to myself, a heap of inconsistency. Now, if you are anything like me, you will resonate with that sentiment. I'm sure there's people in your life that really annoy you and you don't really get them. It could be a work colleague, it could be a neighbor, it could be just someone within the wider friendship or acquaintance circle that you would, you know, bump into from time to time. And I want to propose to you, however, that there's one person that consistently annoys you and that is you. Uh, you will acutely be aware of how radically, how consistently inconsistent you are. I'm aware of that in my own heart. You're aware of that in your own heart. We, we hold up standards that we don't even keep ourselves. We have desires. We can impose things upon others that we wish we would love to see in their life improve, all the while being acutely aware of the things in our life that we've been trying to improve on for years, potentially, and still aren't making much headway. And because of that, as we begin to think of deep community, contagious discipleship, influencing others, here's the immediate thoughts that we will begin to wrestle with. We will immediately feel like frauds, won't we? Um, You ever heard the phrase imposter syndrome? That we almost feel like, what, what on earth have I got to bring to the table? 
because at the end of the day, I am a riddle to myself. I'm a heap of inconsistency. I know how much I fall short on a day and daily basis. And so why on earth would the Lord ever want to use me in order to influence someone else where I can't even bring myself into a place that I'm content with? That's why um, Jared Wilson, in his wonderful book, The Imperfect Disciple, defines discipleship not as following Jesus, but as re-following Jesus every day. Re-following Jesus every day. Get up. It's like, it's, like, uh, it's like the Man United Twitter account, you know, we go again. <laughs> we go again, <laughs> right? Every single day re-following Jesus. And if that is true, if we are all in the same boat, which we are, granted different degrees in terms of our discipleship journey in our faith. Some of you are here and you're maybe saved for months or years. Others have been walking with Jesus for a long time. But the fact of the matter is, if we are all in the same boat and we are all intentionally desiring to re-follow Jesus every day, what this actually means, to quote John Wimber, who said this in another phrase, everyone gets to play. Everyone gets to play. We all have a role in this. Now, discipleship was not the Apostle Paul's idea. Discipleship was actually Jesus' idea that Paul ultimately is deriving this from. Jesus, one of his last words to his disciples, and interestingly, what's, what's insightful about this is that actually technically speaking, when Jesus gives the so-called Great Commission, he actually does not command them to go. The word go in the Greek text is not a command, it's not an imperative. It's actually an, a participle, an ing word. It could be better translated, as you go, make disciples. As you go, make disciples. Now, what is, what is that insight all about? And well, the insight of that is this. Discipleship is not an event. It's a lifestyle. It is the incorporation of our life in Jesus under his lordship into every area and aspect of our lives. And if Paul, as we believe he has, has derived this principle from Jesus, then... When we look at his letters, and the reason why we're looking at 2 Timothy, I mentioned last night, is because since this is his last letter, it shows us apostolic priorities. He is writing this to a local church pastor called Timothy. And what, what we're going to see here as we go through this book at a, a certain level is that Paul is reminding Timothy of how he has been influenced in order to be an influencer how he has been discipled in order to be a discipler. So there's been two major influences in Timothy's life. His mother and grandmother. Praise God if you were brought up in a Christian family or a family of belief. And of course, his grandmother would have been, if you go back to generations, they were in the precipice of the revelation of Jesus. So they were believing Jews who immediately grasped the knowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. He was brought up, discipled in that sense. But Paul will also remind Timothy of Paul's discipleship of Timothy. So not only was he introduced to the gospel, he was also introduced to the ropes of ministry. Paul trained Timothy for ministry. And so Paul is constantly reminding Timothy of those influences, but he's doing more than that. Because as we're going to say, he's going to let Timothy know, now what you've learned from me, you need to do this now for others. Mm. We know what it's like to live over the last few years. Um, the word contagious was pretty prominent in people's minds. Discipleship is completely the opposite of what we were called to do during COVID-19. 
you're to be up close and personal with people, you're to be breathing all over them, and you're to open up your home to everyone as you possibly can, and bringing people into your life. It's the complete opposite. There is no lockdown when it comes to discipleship, spiritually speaking. Open books, open lives. So what's the pattern? What's the pattern of contagious discipleship? And there's, there's four things here that I want to draw our attention to. And the first aspect of the pattern is that I want to draw your attention to is that it's grounded on the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, if, you, if, you were, if any of you were brought up within a, a kind of an evangelical church setting, and I'm aware there's a wide variety of backgrounds here, but if you were brought up in an evangelical church setting and you were sent to church from a younger age, um, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 are, are pretty prominent verses within the evangelical church scene because of our understanding historically of the authority and the role of Scripture in the church. And so you would, you would have learnt it in Sunday school. You would hear it quoted regularly in sermons. And you'll notice in verse 4, it's, it's, been, it's one of the clearest um, definitions of Scripture within the Scripture. Clearest internal testimony of what Scripture wants us to know about itself. You'll notice in verse 14 that as Paul begins to introduce this concept to Timothy, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learnt. That verb for learnt is the verb form of the word disciple that we read in the Gospels. So continue in what you've been discipled in, Timothy. Mm. And from whom you have learnt it, um, that word for whom is plural. So most likely in that context, who's the whom? It's Paul that he mentions in verse 10 and it's his mother and grandmother in verse 15. Remember, Timothy, who's discipled you. Remember what influence has happened in your life. But here's the big question. From what was the, what was the script that Timothy learnt in his discipleship journey? And verse 15 and 16 makes it very, very clear what was the tool in Timothy's discipleship journey. Remember who you learned from it. You firmly believe knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The source of authority in the apostle in Timothy's life from the apostle Paul was the scriptures. And those scriptures are used by the Lord because they're the, the, we're going to see what the scriptures are to bring people into salvation in Jesus. The, the, the authority was the scriptures themselves. You know what this is? This is really encouraging. Let me tell you why it's really encouraging. If you're really wanting to take your walk with Jesus seriously, you don't have to look in the dark for what he wants from you. It, there, there's a clear, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And if the psalmist could write that under the old covenant in the shadows, how much more the people of God today in the fullest revelation of the gospel of Jesus and the breathed out scriptures to us. So if you want to take this seriously, okay, I, I really sense that there's probably people here and you view discipleship as a test that God wants you to pass. And that's not what it is. Your sanctification and growth with Jesus is not a, a test that you need to pass. It's your Father's pleasure to work in you this. Some of you have moved to Dublin and you've worked your backside off in university. You've worked really hard to get you, where you are in your job and you're doing really well and all you've known for the last number of years is work and achieve, work and achieve, work and achieve, pass a test, pass a test, pass a test. That's not the heart of the Father. Mm. 
So when he calls you into Christ and he gives us his word, God is not up thinking, impress me, son. Impress me, daughter. And if you do well, then I'll... This is, not, this is not a test for you to pass. This is the life of God in you and it's the Father's good pleasure to bring you on with Jesus. So get rid of your mind that what we're saying here is some sort of bar that you need to attain. Yes, there's progress. Yes, there's striving. But your heavenly Father is not, a, is not an awful schoolmaster. Okay? How many, how many people in Dublin think God's like the... It's, you know, it's like a nun in a convent somewhere. That's just like a reflection of what always scowling. And unless unless it's a nun out of Derry Girls, it's a wee bit more like going. But you know, that's the that's the the view of God is harsh, setting the test, get rid of the test. This is the family of God. This is this is what it means to be home and to live in family traits. Now, because of what the scriptures are there, God breathed, a term that Paul most likely coined. This word does not appear anywhere else outside of the New Testament. Uh, Paul most likely coined this. What we have in scripture is breathed out by, this is God's very word to us. And because of that, Paul tells us that it is profitable or useful for teaching, for reproof, which has this idea of rebuke, rebuking what's wrong, for correction, which is a restorative term, bringing people back into line with its teaching and precepts, and for training in righteousness. That word for training would have been used to speak of the education of young children growing up in society. So we're all at various different parts of the journey in our walk with Christ, and the the scriptures are the tool in God's hand by the Spirit to train us up. We learn how to crawl. First, learn how to hold our own heads up. Then we're crawling. Then we're walking. We're going from milk and we're going into solid food. And there's the, the spiritual development and all of this finds its root in scriptures. Now, here's the thing. What I'm trying to press home here is not the nature of the scriptures and them being inspired. You can, here's the big thing. You may have an orthodox belief about scripture and you may believe that it is inspired. It is breathed out by God. But your view of scripture means diddly squat to you if it remains closed. Uh, Martin Luther once said that the devil doesn't give a hoot about the written word, but he does give a hoot about the spoken word. Mm. And what he meant by that is a Bible's great, but if it's closed, that's not a threat. A, a closed Bible in the house, a closed Bible in the life, does no threat to the kingdom. But when God's people get together, open it up and discuss the realities of it, mm. that's a different ballgame altogether. And so what we're trying to drive home here is that discipleship to Jesus is rooted in the sufficiency of Scripture, that literally the Scriptures here are sufficient to work in us exactly what the Lord is wanting to work in us. So here's the question. When you think of Scripture and its functional role in your life, do you think of 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17? That it was able to make you wise into salvation, that it is sufficient for your growth. In fact, here's a further question to think about. As you think about your life, your home life, your church life, how you operate, the workplace, your friends, your place of education, what is your functional authority? What is the grid by which you seek to define yourself and understand yourself? Because there can be a subtle disconnect between our understanding of what Scripture is and its functional use in our life. So, for example, I'd imagine there's people here and you've 
you know, young professionals and you're moving in and you want to understand yourself better. So maybe, maybe you're here and the grid by which you define yourself is not a scriptural grid, it's a personality test grid. You've done Myers-Briggs. You've done Enneagram. Well, I'm just the one. I just say it like it is. Or maybe you're self-righteous and rude and need sanctified. Oh, I, I'm, I, just, I just hide. I just hide behind. I'm just easily offended. I'm just a sex. Or maybe there's issues of fear and identity. The Lord needs to work on you. Um, personality tests aren't breathed out by God. The scriptures are. Everything. See, a personality test doesn't need sanctified. So you can hide behind certain behaviors and just call yourself a number. God wants something far better than that for you, right? Because everything must be subservient to this. This is the breathed out sufficient word. It's not that we can't use common grace aspects in certain things. There's other things that maybe under the guise of it's good and it's not good at all. But whatever your, whatever your preconceived identity of yourself, you think of the worst thing about yourself. Do you actually believe despite Bite the worst thing about yourself. Number one, you are loved infinitely by the God of the universe. And number two, you can still change. If you're looking at any other grid, not grounded in the sufficiency of scripture, you'll have no hope. You'll be in despair. And so maybe for some of you, your serious discipleship journey has to begin with wrestling with your understanding of the functional rules scripture has for your life to drink it in, to engage in it more, to submit yourself to the authoritative word of Christ into your life here. But here's another real danger. You're not to do this in isolation. So here's the second thing we need to look at. Um, Not only grounded on the sufficiency of scripture, but it's developed in the context of community. Everyone is reading a script. We want the Bible to be our script. But I want to press into something here concerning Timothy and Paul's relationship. Um, Chapter 2, verse 22, Paul writes to Timothy and he lets Timothy know or he commands Timothy to flee youthful passions. And that word for passions is used elsewhere by Paul. It's used in Galatians 5 to describe the works of the flesh. So, you know, immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage. Now, think about this for a minute. What does it presuppose that Paul is able to write to Timothy and say, flee youthful lusts? And what this presupposes is that Paul knew Timothy really well. Timothy's life was an open book before Timothy. Before Paul. Paul knew the issues that Timothy struggled with and he's able to call him out on that. Well, and very sadly, Timothy has to have this read out before his entire church and now the whole universal church know about Timothy's problems. So maybe confidentiality with Paul wasn't the thing to be grasped, but not that withstanding, this was a unique case. Timothy's life was such an open book that Paul knew the issues that Timothy struggled with. And the, the opposite was also true. Because look at chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. The word for aim is purpose. Um, My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So Timothy was an open book before Paul, and Paul was an open book before Timothy. So as, as they are... Doing life together, as we would say in our vernacular, there is an intimate, open um, 
to the deepest crevices of each of their hearts. Paul knew all about Timothy's struggles and Timothy knew all about Paul, what drove him, what got him up in the morning. He knew Paul's aim in life. He knew his purpose. Now let's talk about Jesus for a minute again because Paul's deriving all of this from Jesus, right? Because he says, you followed, you followed my teaching. When Jesus called his disciples to follow him, there's a beautiful, what would happen at this time is that, that would-be students would attach themselves to a rabbi. And literally how they would learn from them is because that's what a disciple is. A disciple is a student, an apprentice. They would literally just follow them. They would, they would observe. They would, yes, they would be teaching, but they would also be teaching through demonstration. They would, and so in Mark chapter 3, when Jesus calls these apostles, the first thing it says is that he chose them that they might be with him, that he might send them out. There's no sending out before you're spending time with. That's the order. The order decided, so, so just as Jesus did that with these men, that's what the apostle Paul has done with Timothy. You followed my conduct. You followed my life. You've listened to my words. You've watched my lifestyle. Because one of the biggest dangers that we have in our individualistic culture is that when you hear discipleship, you only think about your quiet time on your own. That's what we do. That's all we do. We think of our little quiet time on our own. We think of our own personal, all of that has its place. But that is only a small, small reality because when Christ calls his people, what does he call them into? He calls them into community. You're only one part of the body and you need other parts of the body in this discipleship journey. And so one of the biggest challenges that we have in church is to go beyond the superficial false community that is often demonstrated. Because if chapter 2 verse 22 and chapter 3 verse 10 is anything to go by, the implications of this is that this has to be beyond an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. It has to be. You cannot follow someone's life and conduct by chatting over them for a cup of coffee after the service. It just doesn't happen. Even beyond the groups, community groups, missional, whatever, you, everyone's got a new name for them these days, whatever you call them, praise the Lord. Um, we just have at home groups. We're very boring up north. Um, we don't have a government either. So yeah, we're, we're rebels and boring at the same time. Maybe rebels isn't the right word they're used down, and down south, but that's a different story altogether. But yes, that's what's us, right? Let's bring, think practically for a minute. Let's uh, go on to the next slide. I think there's some questions here. I think. Unless I didn't put this in the slide. Yes, great. After that again, is there? Yes, here we go. Now, these might seem a little bit trite initially. But I want to um, encourage some very, very practical things. You think of you in your quiet time on your own. The thing that we did in our church, well, not, not it was a certain group of men. I was kind of um, discipling in a more intense way, kind of 10, 12 men in the church, trying to identify especially future elders. But it's encouraged men generally. Women tend to initiate things a lot better than, than men do for whatever reason. And... Um, there's a, there's a tool that we would use. I don't know if you heard it called Seeing Jesus Together. It's a community Bible reading journal. You get the journal. There is the individual. You read, read one or two chapters a day, whatever works for you. You read the chapter. You do your, it takes you through prayers to pray, confession, thanksgiving, praise, all of that. But then what you're encouraged to do is to meet up in threes and fours. Talk about what did you get in there. You're, doing all, you're all doing the same reading. And you're talking about what, what's Jesus talking to you today about? 
What do you get in the reading? What, what's, what's the Lord? And it gets you to think about what the next steps are for your life. What scenarios is he focusing in on? What opportunities could he be leading you in? And so, and so what, what you're actually doing is you're, all you're doing is you're incorporating your personal Bible reading, but you're, you're allowing others to come into that. Mm. And even if, if uh, there's no doubt here, every single one of us, but there's probably people here who are acutely struggling with regular Bible reading. And even if you did something like this in a WhatsApp group, right? Even if your early motivation in those days is just to make sure everyone knows that you read the Bible that day and you don't want to look like a failure. Even if that's your, even if that's your earlier motivation, it's not the best of motivations. But to get into that habit, it, it, could, be wor- I mean, it could be worse reading the Bible, couldn't it? It could be doing worse than that. Even if your motivation is, I don't want, I don't want to be the old one out because everyone's sending in their little thought for the day and I haven't done this. Then to, to, to practice, you're, you're, you're allowing people in. You're allowing people into your personal space. You've done your reading that day and now you're getting on the WhatsApp. I love verse 16. The Lord really ministered to me. You know what? It was actually this other verse that got me today. And what we're actually seeing is we're, we're, we're feeding on this together. Very, this is very simple. You have to, if you don't start simple, you'll not keep it going. You don't start simple, you'll not keep it going. So we're not, we're not calling for everyone to meet at four o'clock in the morning, you know, before sunrise and having a two-hour worship service. You, you know, if you, don't keep, you, if you start there, you will not keep it going, especially winter, winter uh, mornings in Ireland. My goodness, um, I'm an atheist until 11 o'clock in the morning, to be honest with you. It's just, just it's like, oh, sunlight, you know. <laughs> it's, huh? it's only half t- I'm, <laughs> I'm an atheist until 10 o'clock yeah. I forgot the, the clock went back there Mafi, last weekend so that's where I got it wrong um, for some of you if you are working in the city what can you meet up 20, 20 minutes once a week half an hour before meet in a coffee shop and here's the thing even in the sanctification of conversations there's a woman in our home group and we usually meet every other Sunday night and we have our tea coffee and we meet and then we will start our discussion and study and uh, usually the turning point, there's a, there's a woman in our home group, she's just a notorious joker, she's called Debbie, but we're, ta- we're talking, we're having coffee, and then she'll say, she'll knock, the, uh, she'll knock our living room door, because it's in our home, and she'll say, right Jesus, you can come in now, we're not talking any nonsense anymore. Because how many, how many times on a week-to-week basis would you meet a Christian for coffee? But you don't go deep. You're not sanctifying. We're not sanctifying the con- As you go, make disciples. So instead of talking about what you're watching in Netflix and the sports results and how, you know, even generically how family life is, all of that has, a, what about sanctifying? Let's, let's bring the Lord into the conversation. What does the Lordship of Jesus look like in the context of this immediate conversation? When we meet up, what's, what's our focus? Our focus is we, I'm a disciple of Jesus, you're a disciple of Jesus. And yet here's also where we need to watch today because it's very, very easy. If, if, the church, if, if Christians meet up in community and talk, we'll either go from the superficial, but we could also get very, very um, caught up by talking about the controversial. Mm. And so here's the third thing that I want to draw our attention to. Um, it's inspired by gospel centrality. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we live in a world full of distractions that get us talking about things that maybe have a certain element of importance, but by no means supreme importance. Did you see, I'm sure you saw it in the reading in chapter two, how often effectively Paul tells Timothy to keep the main thing the main thing. 
Um, verse 14, do not quarrel about words as it only ruins the hearers. That, that word for ruin is the word where we get our English word catastrophe from. It just overturns things. Verse 15, Timothy is to handle the word properly as opposed to promoting, depending what your translation is, irreverent babbling, ESV I'm using. Uh, the word means fruitless discussions. It is entirely possible for Christians to get together and have fruitless discussions. It's not, it's not gospel-centered. It's not doing anyone any good. In fact, in verse 16, what, does these, what do these fruitless discussions do? It leads people into more and more ungodliness, which is exactly the exact same description that the culture is given in verses 1 to 9. Interesting. So it is entirely possible for Christians to meet up and they're just acting like the world in their speech. It's pretty frightening. In verse 23... Paul or Paul, I Paul writes to Timothy and say, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Now let me tell you why this is staggering. This is happening in the first century, not the 21st century. And if it was true for the first century church, I mean, think of the last seven years. Think of the last seven years and the amount of conversations that Christians have had. Well, I mean, Christians have left churches over arguments such as these things. 2016, Brexit, Trumpism, the pandemic. Masks, mandates, um, the war in Russia, the war in the Middle East. And it's not that no one can have an opinion in those things, and it's not that people can't talk about these things in, in, in very certain limited settings. It's even worse when it's hobby horse from the pulpit. But what are these? They're fruitless discussions that only bring quarrels. If it's causing more heat than light, probably best to stay away from it. That's right. It's not gospel. So why would anyone, why would anyone want to meet up for community if all they feel like is like a left-wing liberal because of their political position? Or why would anyone want to go to a community group if they feel like a right-wing, you know, radical on the other side? If, 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 our, if the political lens is the only thing that's being emphasized. You get, you get, so, and this is, this, is, this is coming from the inspired scripture. You'd almost think they're sufficient. <laughs> Do you see how it's prophetically cutting through even our cultural milieu today? And Paul, so when you, when you, and this is, Timothy had to model this from the front. He had to model this as a pastor. Timothy, make sure you and make sure your congregation do not take part in fruitless discussions. Do not go on about things that are not going to be productive. Listen, your growth as a Christian is not going to take place within the soil of controversy. Doesn't, it doesn't happen within the soil of controversy. There has to be a centrality to the commitment of the gospel, gospel centrality. And there is another reason why this is important. Because Paul now is going to link discipleship in this manner to actually reaching the culture. You want to reach Dublin, I presume? <laughs> and further feel if the Lord grants even greater to larger tent pegs further. What's going to be the key? Because by the way, I am not coming here with any, there's no such thing as a magic bullet to reach a city. There isn't a magic bullet. But there's a sufficient scripture that gives us principles. And there's prayer. And the most amazing thing is there's the power of the Spirit through the prayers of God's people and through the worship of the church. Uh, and so that's always our, our, our confidence. Here's the last thing that I want to draw our attention to. There's inspired by gospel centrality. And finally, that all of this is a driving force for a Christ-like witness. A driving force for a Christ-like witness. Notice that when Paul moves from warning Timothy about engaging in things that produce quarrels, notice in verse 24 that he gives the reason for this. Because the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but what? 
kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Now, do you see? So do you see how Paul goes from how the church talks, what the emphasis is among the church, and then he switches to reaching the culture out there in terms of our disposition toward them. In fact, let me, um, if this was a camera lens, let's zoom out. I just want to show you the flow of thought because this is Paul's flow of thought from 2.14 through to 3.10. Timothy, don't get distracted in ministry with words and discussions that are fruitless. It's not going to do anyone any good. Why? Because God's people are to be defined by not being quarrelsome as they engage unbelievers with kindness and respect. And God may perhaps grant those repentance. Well, what do they need repentance over? Well, chapter 3, verses 1 to 9 was a pretty big list, wasn't it? Lovers of self. They live in The first century had a selfie culture as well. They didn't have a smartphone, but it was a selfie culture. Lovers of money, greed, disobedient to parents. It was, it was a w- wickedness, wickedness in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. But God may even perhaps grant a culture like that, repentance, all being used are the Christians that are actually having a disposition of love mm-hmm. and kindness. But notice chapter 3, verse 10, the no- verse that we looked at already. But Timothy, remember that you've learned all of this from me. Mm-hmm. So do you see how Paul connects his own discipleship of Timothy to how Timothy is to shape his own church and discipleship with reaching the culture. It's contagious. Paul's taught Timothy, who's teaching the church, who have a radical disposition as they're reaching a Christless culture. Angry and agitated Christians are not a very good selling point for Christianity. The, The culture's already angry enough out there. And so effective mission, effective evangelism, is not going to take place if all Christians are doing are meeting up, arguing about the hot topics of culture and the culture wars, and then going back out with that disposition of anger. That's not going to happen. But I I want to drive something else home here. Because I imagine that some of you here can say yes and amen to all of this. Yes, gentleness and respect. We need to be kind. But that's not what the text says. The text does not say you're called to be kind. The text says you need to correct your opponents with gentleness and respect. Some of you here don't struggle with being kind. Some of you struggle here with correcting opponents. Because it's Dublin, man. It's the the secular, continental, postmodern city. It's like you do you and I do me. And it's easier not to correct because at the end of the day, if we correct, I would only look like a minority. Rain check, the church has always been a minority. In fact, when she was in the majority, it didn't work out too well. We tried to legalize the state, you know, the Christianity and kind of, I don't know, mixing the sword with, you know, trying heretics by beheading them and burning them. And, you know, I, I, you know it's, it always, it, it just baffles my mind. We have a lot of people in the North, right? And you'll hear this in prayer meetings. And it's like, oh, call, the, call this nation back to you. And it's like, mm. like, when were we a Christian nation? Mm. Was it when the Protestants were in control and killing all the Catholics or was it vice versa? Was when we're killing each other in the name of Jesus? Like, when exactly were we a Christian country for God in Ulster? Give me a break. Right? Call this name. No, no. God has always had a nation within a nation. A remnant within, right? And so, well, I, I don't even, I, maybe I was of the spirit, or maybe it was just me in the flesh getting angry at Northern Ireland. I don't know. But, I mean, um, th- th- this is so critical. We view ourselves rightly. This is so critical that we 
understand that we are that they're being a faithful disciple does have a prophetic edge to the culture. You will correct opponents with gentleness. You're not rude. You're not arrogant. You're not judging them in the sense of making a declaration about their eternal destination. We're grace-soaked, but brothers and sisters, there comes a point where you do correct. We are a people of truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. There are people in your immediate family, workplace, friendships, and if they do not know Jesus, they are lost, lost eternally, without God and hope in this world, and will not do them any, you know, we're, we live for a long, long time of br building bridges with, with unbelievers. I've built so many bridges, the problem is no one's crossing them. We love building bridges. But the whole purpose of a bridge, I mean, you've been to the 300th football match with your unsaved Christian friend. I'm just building, have you asked him to church yet? Yeah. So you're, you're building a bridge. I'm just building a bridge. I've been building a bridge for three years. Open your mouth. Mm. Oh, but I don't want them to think I'm rude. We'll come back tonight. We'll deal with the fear man then. Yeah. Right? Because there's, there's other issues. Allow the Lord to reveal the idols of what is keeping us back from being more effective. I want to tell you about a church. I'm almost done, Matthew. A lot of things came to my mind there that I uh, hadn't planned to say. Um, if anything was chaff, I let it blow away. I want to end by telling you of um, a church in, in London, a part of our advanced network called Grace Church in London. Because when Matthew says, you know, you know, apply this to a secular liberal city like Dublin, I'm like, I'm in Ballyclare. I'm at the heart of the Bible Belt in Northern Ireland. It just, I, I, you know, imposter syndrome. I was the fraud. You know, the guy from Ballyclare come to Dubliners telling them how to reach the city. I'm in a population of 12,000 people. The majority of them are farmers. Um, the Grace Church London run what is known as the Salt Course. Because when you bring these two together, the mission and the discipleship, and what they do is they take the, hot top, the top seven things that people have to talk about, hope, peace, all of these various things. And they, I think it's once a month, they will rent out a coffee shop. They're, they're, they're getting lots of people in who are genuine questions about faith. And there's a couple of, there's a couple of rules that are laid down. Um, no question is off the table. Everyone is going to be welcome no matter where they stand on any given issue. There's a talk given. It is given from a purely evangelistic, gospel-centered Christian worldview perspective. And it's thrown out and people can ask any question they want. Now, I imagine there's still the remnants of institutionalized religion that are still lingering in Dublin. And I still imagine that a lot of people are reacting to a religious system where you weren't allowed to ask any questions. Mm. And the Reformation happened because people started asking a lot of questions. Yeah? Asking a lot of questions. Is this, is this really, like, indulgent? Really? Indulgences? Really? I have to pay God to get there? You know, all of... So, questions are good. And to have an environment in church where you can literally ask any question, there is something quite... There's something that breaks down the hostility of an unbeliever when they, when they are allowed to ask you any question, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable. And Grace London bring in, and, what, and so here's, here's the wonderful thing what happens at the Salt Course. Not only are, is the culture being reached with the gospel, but Christians are also witnessing and are being trained up as to how to share their faith more effectively. It's all happening at the one time, month to month, in coffee shops. Um, here's, that's what I'm ending on, six points, six strategies 
for reaching non-Christian friends. This is from a great book by Sam Chan, uh, Evangelism in a Skeptical World. I don't think I put this on there because I, I, I added this in after the PowerPoint was sent. You can write this down if you want. Number one, get, your, get our friends to become their friends. That is, if you're a Christian, you straddle two worlds. You've got non-Christian friends and you've got your church community friends. Get, get your non-Christian friends to become your Christian friends. Be that, be that bridge. <laughs> don't take out of context. And allow them to walk into each other. Right? Get... Because you're, you're wanting these unbelievers to be not just connected with a singular Christian, but into the Christian community. What creative ways can you do to get the two groups together? Number two, go to them before they come to you. So even a book that addresses secularism and postmodern world, Christians taking the initiative. Go to them before they come to you. Number three, Sam Chan talks about the three layers of conversation. Um, he talks about coffee, dinner, gospel. If you remember meeting new people and work and you're getting that you remember you're remember you're in a stage where you're you're beginning to make new friends just because of the season in life that you're at and how you will begin is if you're beginning friendships that's going to begin with the odd coffee meet up for coffee how you're getting to the next stage is right we need to go back from we need to get from coffee to get them over for dinner something amazing happens when you're around a dinner table coffee dinner gospel and um, what you're aiming for is progress with depth and progress and vulnerability with each other so that these unbelievers will open up. Number four, here's an amazing thing. Listen. Listen to their story. Listen to their heart posture. Listen to their disappointments, their fears, their anxieties. Think about how does the gospel intersect with their worldview? What, what, what script are they living off that almost sounds like the gospel but isn't? Um. Because there's, 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 there are academics today that are doing this really well. And, and, and it's, it's so close, but it's so far. You think of people like Jordan Peterson, mm-hmm. where he's ticking a lot of so-called good boxes. It's so close to Christian worldview, but it's Christless and it's painful to watch at the same time. But the church has got a better story. Number five, tell them your own story. Mm-hmm. And number six, relate the conversations that I've just saying to a story involving Jesus. Jesus' ministry is so varied for a deliberate reason. One minute he's with Jews, the next minute he's with Gentiles. He's with people with no, he's with religious people and irreligious people. He's people who are um, sinning fragrantly and being religious fragrantly and are both equally lost. Jesus intersects all of that because his gospel is radically different. Chapter 2, verses 20 to 21 tells us that Jesus is like the master of a house and in his house are different vessels. Why does all this matter? Because Paul wants Timothy to know that if he's doing this well, there's vessels that are used for ordinary use, but there's vessels that are actually used for really, you know, you've grown up, did you, did you ever have that cupboard where you had the cutlery that only guests were allowed to use? Yeah. So Jesus goes into his kitchen, into the pantry, wherever the storage is, and Jesus has got a special work to do, and he's after special vessels. If we're doing this right, brothers and sisters, we will have a church full of special vessels. When Jesus wants to do a special work, now you're ready to be used in a wonderfully special way. And this is the Father's good pleasure to make us people like this in our discipleship journey. So may the Lord continue to speak to us and minister to us. Amen.